Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear It Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. Welcome to, I guess we call it a special edition of Let's Hear It. Kirk, uh, how you doing, first of all? You know, I'm doing I'm doing as well as I think any of us can be right now. How are you doing? Uh, about the same. It's this is a, a, an extremely challenging time for everybody, and we decided to do a I don't know a special set of interviews with folks who are experts in crisis communications around health issues. And you, you, I have to say, Kirk, you took the initiative in a in an extremely aggressive way. Can you talk a little bit about? who you contacted and why. Yeah, given what's been going on, uh, I would say one thing about our podcast, Eric, we, we are not intending to be a breaking news podcast, right? We're not intending to be um, responding to the headlines of the day every day, but given how significant this current moment has been, um, I reached out to two people who were immediately responsive and generous with their time. Uh, Barbara Reynolds, uh, uh, Center for disease controls, Tulane University, a crisis and reputational risk specialist. She literally helped write the book on crisis and emergency risk communications for the CDC about 20 years ago. And then Thompson Prentice, who um, spoke to me from France, uh, formerly the World Health Organization, now um, does consulting and in, in work in communications work with WHO. But um, was the managing editor of the world the, of the WHO World Health Report for um, from ninety five to two thousand nine? Both have written and about managing communications aspects of epidemics, um, and both were immediately responsive to talking with me just a couple of days ago on virtually no notice. And um, I found that both conversations just really interesting given this unfortunate time that we're in and had the conversations recorded them shared them with you and and i was happy to hear that you kind of felt the same about them eric yeah and to be clear thompson prentice is anything but french (laughs) (laughs) he's got that great scottish brogue uh it's this is a this is just an interesting time, and we won't spend too much time talking about this before we go to these two interviews, the two relatively brief interviews with folks who are both experts in communicating about health issues. But as I listened to these interviews, it occurred to me that the lessons that they are communicating to us are are pretty applicable across all kinds of communications and particularly in crisis communications. So let's have a listen and then we'll come back and we'll talk about what we took away from those two really, really interesting interviews. I'm so pleased and frankly so grateful and thankful to be joined right now uh, by Dr. Barbara Reynolds, who 
is uh, one of our real authorities in this area of both uh, crisis and risk communications as it relates to these public health considerations. So, Dr. Reynolds, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I'm happy to do so. It's a time when probably people have some questions about how do you communicate with this kind of risk and these changes that are occurring in our lives right now. It's a familiar Uh, experience for me going back uh, decades looking at the question of how do you talk to people when their lives have been turned upside down and probably there's a portion of uh, the population right now that is feeling quite like that and Mm. uh, so it's a it's a important subject and I do believe that communicating well to people in whatever setting we're in helps all of us in the long run. So Dr. Reynolds, I found you through some of the work you've done in this field. Do you mind just giving uh, our audience a little quick uh, biographical sketch, you will, if you will? Um, I became quite interested in this area of risk communication uh, when I left the United States Army and joined the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. And uh, I knew there was a field of risk communication that was related to environmental health. But I was experiencing through my military experience and then with uh, infectious disease outbreaks uh, with the CDC, a different kind of environment. And it was, how do you talk to people around infectious disease outbreaks? They're a little different because they're more immediate. Uh, The novelty is so high. You don't have a lot of time to make decisions, the best decisions for you. The information is so uncertain. And uh, from that was born actually a new field of communication uh, called crisis and emergency risk communication. And it's focused on trying to avoid mistakes in the way we communicate to people about risk of infectious diseases and also trying to communicate in a way that empowers people to make the best possible decisions for themselves, their families and their communities when an infectious disease outbreak does occur. So I, I want to push you on that. You say a field was born out. Didn't you, in a sense, write the book? Didn't you actually write the book? <laughs> on this yes, field? I, I have to admit uh, that literally, and this, it really came to fruition for me back way back in 1997. I was uh, deployed to Hong Kong by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to participate. I was the first Uh, Although I'm a social psychologist, I work in the field of communication. So first communicator to be uh, deployed to an outbreak situation. It was for um, influenza type A H5N1, which most people wouldn't know, but they might know it as the bird flu. Mm. And it was another situation of a novel influenza virus that was taking hold and killing people at a pretty high fatality rate. So we went to Hong Kong. I was there for two months. And fortunately, the outbreak was damped down at the time. But it offered me an opportunity to see in real time how people were reacting to this idea that there was a a virus that was circulating. It was killing people and there was no vaccine or treatment for it uh, that we were aware of at the time. And from that, I realized there's two things that go on in communication for organizations. They have to be able to communicate good information to the public that the public can use, but they also have to take the steps necessary to, uh, for lack of a better way to describe it, protect their reputation. So they have to build 
on their credibility. And we can quickly lose our credibility of an, as an organization, even though we may be doing the right thing, but we're not communicating well about it. Mm. There's the possibility that you ruin your reputation. And if you ruin your reputation in that moment, who's going to listen to you and get the good advice that they need? Mm. And I truly believe that communicating well in a crisis situation about the risks and doing those things that help people help themselves through your communication act as another tool to respond to the disaster. So because of that, I went back and started to work on this, do research, um, became a PhD at that point uh, as a social psychologist. And it wasn't until the uh, anthrax incident in 2001 that the, uh, that the Department of Health and Human Services and the CDC understood the value, perhaps, of this kind of communication work. And from there, I wrote the book. And then I wrote a few more after that. Uh, and uh, we were off to the races trying to share these concepts as widely as possible. And they are used across the world, or at least they've been introduced uh, across the world. And we hope that people will refer to it when they need help communicating when people's lives have been turned upside down. So would you would you say it's fair to say we're in a crisis communications moment right now related to COVID-19? Is that the moment we're in? Uh, absolutely. I, I, I feel it's critically important that any organization trying to communicate to their, I call them stakeholders, but those people who are looking to them for information and for guidance, that it's really important we think through how do people react when they're feeling threatened? I mean, really threatened by something. And uh, what can we do as communicators to uh, maintain our credibility, and you do that through being trustworthy and the uh, sharing expertise. Um, how, what can we do as an organization to communicate in a way that people get the help that they need? And this is definitely that kind of situation. Uh, there's a range of risk out there. I mean, obviously, with this virus, there is also a great deal still of uncertainty uh, about where this is going as a response and as a virus itself. There's always questions that need to be answered. Uncertainty is one of the hardest things people have to deal with. We are hardwired to try to do whatever we can to reduce uncertainty. And unfortunately, there are times when we have to ask uh, people we're talking to, our stakeholders, the general public, whomever it is, we have to ask them to just be patient with us and we will try to get those answers. But while we're asking them to be patient, it's our obligation to share the process with them, to let them into the process, let them see what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it. And I also think it's really important uh, to give people things to do, but it's not enough to lecture. You not only have to tell them what to do, but you need to tell them why to do it. Mm. So it's not enough to just say, you know, stay home. You have to explain what's the advantage to me, to my family and my community if I stay home. And when you do that, uh, you have a better chance of coming out to the other side of an event like we're going through right now um, better, not worse. Clearly, you've been in this field a long time and, you know, communications is changing day by day, even just as a, as a field. What role have you seen social media and kind of a more social connectivity playing in the COVID-19 crisis? And what's your overall assessment mm -hmm. of that? Yeah, I actually 
<clears throat> excuse me, I actually uh, noted social media in our response to uh, influenza H1N1 back in 2009. That was the first time that uh, we really saw a role for social media in a uh, outbreak response, uh, and that that was a pandemic. Um, and I I teach it as the good, the bad, and the ugly because that's what social media offers us. They offer it offers us some real opportunities to connect and be connected and to get information to people quickly. It uh, also can be bad because misinformation, you know, moves at the speed of light. And it's ugly because people are mean to each other sometimes in that anonymous environment. So I would uh, say that there's absolutely a role and it's the reality. So social media is going to exist. It puts tremendous pressure on those people who are trying to do official communication because it's very hard to stay up with uh, rumors and misinformation that's circulating. So it's, uh, it, it helps, but it can also hurt. And I think anybody realizes that in any situation. And so we need to take a, a moment and step back. I tend to be a skeptical individual, and especially so when I am absorbing information through social media. I have to ask, what is the source of this information? Where did it come from? Um, you kind of look for, you know, in the research world, we call it face validity. Does that really make sense? Uh, and, and just take a pause and ask it. And then if I could do anything to change the dynamic in social media today and every day, it would be, could we be a little more civil? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when, when people are stressed and upset, we should forgive them a little bit if they are acting out, but we also should try to maintain our own composure. Uh, and when it's all said and done, it'd be nice if you know, we came out on the other side helping each other rather than tearing each other down in that arena and in any. I feel for any decision maker at the community level making decisions right now about community health considerations. And I had a first person experience last week with our local superintendent of schools. I just sent a quick one line, hey, hang in there. I know it's a tough time note. And this person who yeah. I've never had any interactions with before wrote me back immediately and said, thank you. And I just had a feeling that those oh, community yeah. level folks are probably not getting a lot of, it's probably one of the hardest times in their careers I can imagine in a moment like this. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You're absolutely right. My, uh, my doctoral, uh, my dissertation work was on the crisis leader within the context of um, major events, public health events like uh, infectious disease outbreak. And uh, the good thing for local officials is that they are automatically more highly trusted than uh, people at, further away from them or at the national or international level. So that they have going for them. But they are truly on the front lines. And what you did is one of the uh, components of what I think is important communication in a crisis, and that is you express empathy. And uh, what we ask from our leaders is that they also express empathy, that they acknowledge that people might be fearful. And even though we might not be afraid because we have expert 
knowledge about this event or we've been through it before. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking to my great niece who's, uh, you know, college has uh, closed down. And this is the first time she's experienced anything like this. And, mm. and it's my job to not say, well, you have no reason to be afraid. My job is to acknowledge that she might be afraid and then give her information that could help her be less afraid. And, um, you know, I'm, I might be uh, a doctor of psychology for crisis communication, but I'm also an aunt. <laughs> and it was really nice when I could get off the phone and she said, oh, I feel better now. <laughs> <laughs> and so we want people to feel better. And the reason we want them to feel better is because then we want them to feel empowered to make the good decisions and take the actions that will really help them again, their family and their community. And that's what we're trying for. All of the information and the strategies that we embody in crisis and emergency risk communication is designed to help people make the best possible decisions in a crisis where there is a great deal of uncertainty and perhaps decisions have to be made really quickly and with imperfect information. And one of the ways that you do that is to alert people to the idea, based on what we know now, this is what we're recommending. Stay tuned. If we get more information and that needs to change, we'll let you know. And if you uh, um, prime people that way to the idea that they're going to be part of the process and we're going to share what we know and we'll make a good decision for you as experts in this moment. But we might have to change it because something may change or we may know something that we didn't know before uh so they can kind of roll with us instead of just doing the gotcha thing what do you uh feel about the use of first person stories in a moment like this to help motivate people to take certain steps if we're actually telling stories related to people who've had this experience and demonstrate how severe this could be i will tell you that uh before people can take in the fact they will take in the first person personal story. That's what's going to relate to them. And the more that the person who's telling the story seems they're like me, the more likely the story will have impact. And that can be good and that can be bad. Um, it, because there are so many variables in a person's story that uh, it could be that the information is going to uh, make the response more difficult, or it could be one that reinforces what people are experiencing. Um, all of us are, are interested in hearing the stories, the experiences of people who have gone through something that we think we might have to go through or that we haven't known anyone before who has gone through it. Um, I have seen just in my uh, listening to the, the media reports uh, and the news coverage, I have seen some very inspirational uh, uh, shared stories. And I do think they can be very helpful. They can be instructive. They can help us learn. There's uh, uh, Dr. Albert Bandura that talks about uh, how to persuade people to, to do something. And one of the, you know, especially when you, you're trying to persuade them to do something that's good for them. And one of the ways that we do that is through uh, social modeling, mm. where people who are like us are doing something. And so we look at that and say, if they could do it, I can do it. 
<laughs> and I think back uh, to some of the challenges I've had in my life, and I thought, well, I'm not the first person in the world to have done this. If they can do it, I can do it too. <laughs> and uh, so, and that means that we can take the steps necessary to protect ourselves. You know, it, 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 oftentimes when our lives have been turned upside down, we think, well, there's no way in the world I could do this, you know? <laughs> uh, and then we step back and say, well, other people are managing to do it. What did they do? We can teach each other. We can help each other in, in the situation. So I think shared stories are good. I will also tell you that for leaders, uh, what we call them is war stories, but the mistakes mm. that have been made in the past are also very illustrative in helping uh, current uh, leaders do a better job uh, in, in their role. And so it's the good stories and the bad stories can be helpful. And we're going to have to capture some of those stories as we go forward. Uh, and we will go forward. There, yeah. This will pass. We will get through it. Oh, Dr. Reynolds, thank you so much for taking the time today. Is there anything you want to share with folks before we liberate you back to your busy schedule? I think it's really important for people to understand that if they're feeling uh, fearful right now, there's nothing wrong with that. What's important is to try to uh, get the information you need that will help you manage your fear. It's okay to be afraid. Don't let people tell you, don't be afraid. Hmm. Uh, be afraid, but be afraid and be informed and get the information that you need and share that information in a way that other people uh, can take it in. And the quickest way to feel less fearful is to do something. And so when people ask you to do something, go ahead and move in that direction and um, be a part of our solution as we deal with what is a bad virus. Uh, that is something that we just have to uh, move uh, through and we'll be over it. And um, these will be uh, important stories. We also have to be very uh, aware that there are some people that are suffering uh, by loss of life. That's Mm. horrible on its face. That's the most horrible thing that we're dealing with. Uh, But sometimes even uh, financial loss can feel Uh, almost as bad and so there's a lot of fear but don't uh, don't beat yourself up for feeling fearful try to get the information that can help you manage that fear doesn't have to go away you just have to manage it dr reynolds thank you kirk i think that's it (laughs) Uh, that's that's everything that's a lot i love that thank you so much really appreciate you taking the time thank you for all of your past work and continued work and Thank you for literally writing the book for the moment that we're in right now. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. So welcome into a special edition of Let's Hear It. Given the circumstances unfolding globally with COVID-19, we are dropping a couple of um, podcasts this week related to the communications dimension of that very unfortunate global challenge. And today, I'm so grateful to be joined by Thompson Prentice, who is uh, formerly of the WHO, consults today uh, with them. Thompson, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure. 
Um, so I have to uh, ask, I, I believe we're practicing appropriate social distancing. I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. Where, where are you uh, having this conversation from? I'm speaking from uh, France, but very close to the Swiss border uh, and Geneva. So from where I live to Geneva Airport, it's about 20 minutes. So uh, to, get, to get started, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? So um, I worked with WHO uh, as a, a staff uh, member, as a, a writer, um, an editor, and a communications uh, person. Uh, on and off, uh, well, constantly, for 17 years. After leaving WHO, uh, retiring, I hope you might think early, but huh. uh, retiring, um, I continued to very frequently work as a consultant writer or editor for projects at various departments at WHO focusing on, including epidemics. So uh, that's that part of it, and just very briefly, for you. Um, before then, I was a journalist, newspaper journalist, and then I graduated with the Times of London to be a medical writer. Mm. And that fell beautifully or awfully, whichever way you want to think about it, with <laughs> the advent of AIDS. So I started writing about health and medicine as the AIDS epidemic was taking off. And that became my bread and butter work for a few good few years afterwards and um, so I've got some experience of that subject including in the United States in San Francisco in New York in Washington traveling sometimes independently um, or sometimes with British government health ministers people like that and attending international AIDS conferences so that's where I am now well clearly a tremendous background what is the role of WHO related to all of what we're going through? WHO, a lot of people find what it does confusing or think it does things that it doesn't. But I don't want to labor that point. But WHO is basically um, made up of the member states of it. Every country in the world has a vote, if you like, in WHO's actions. But its main purpose is not to be on the ground, hands on your pulse, um, but to help the entire global health community to communicate, share information, share data, provide expertise in an epidemic, for example, on request. It doesn't have the direct powers to say, okay, there's an epidemic in, say, an African country, and we're coming over to sort it out. It doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. it, it requires the country to say, would you please come and help us? But in that capacity, you also, it seems, create resources. So in 2018, you were the editor for WHO document entitled Managing Epidemics. Is that correct? Yes. Could you talk a little bit about that work? Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think there are possibly two ways you would like me to approach this. One is what the technical work of managing epidemics actually was yeah and the other is the communication side of that yes okay? that's right yes so this managing epidemics thing i think was promoted or provoked perhaps by the surge of infectious disease epidemics or even pandemics around the world and there were some obvious examples of that about that time or a little bit before like ebola for example or avian flu or other types of uh, flu and the whole issue of 
why pandemics occur um, needed to be uh, examined in great detail and then communicated in an appropriate form. The team that I was working with, I forget exactly how many, but let's say they had 25 to 35 individual diseases that were of concern. Some remained relatively local. Some had the capacity for international or national first and then international travel. And SARS, of course, you would possibly, you're aware of SARS, which was severe acute respiratory syndrome. Uh, something like flu and something like coronavirus now, but SARS was more severe than typical flu, and coronavirus is more similar to SARS. Hmm. So I think the WHO had a big responsibility to come up with the soundest possible medical and scientific advice, primarily for the country or location that was most in need of it. A key element I would like to mention is communication. Where does communication begin? And I think the Ebola story and SARS also, it begins where the disease begins. Mm. In WHO's view, you need to get to the people who most need to be best informed first. And that's the healthcare workers, uh, the scientists and the doctors on the ground who really need to get the picture straight themselves in order to inform the general population. So that's a key point in my mind. You start communications where there's a health risk with the people at risk, not the general public. That comes later because with the general public, there's a possibility of it being misunderstood and the misunderstanding going back to the, the source of the disease. And so I think that's very, that's very sound, very wise and effective advice. It's connected also to the fact that you need, as an entity like WHO or even in any health entity, you need to win the trust of the people. If they don't trust you, then you're lost. So the communication challenge there is at the epicenter to get them feeling they can trust you, feeling that you're credible, feeling that you know what you're talking about, feeling that you care about them, and helping them to communicate it to their neighbours, to their families, to the people across the street or at the other end, uh, end of the village or wherever else. So I think communication from WHO's point of view, sta starts there. But, of course, when it becomes an epidemic that spreads widely and nationally and internationally, then, of course, you have to engage the wider public, and that's largely through one form of media or the other. And how do you think we're doing on the communications front with COVID-19? It's my opinion, but I think it reflects what I also know from my contacts at WHO and other sources. Uh, I think it's very patchy. Mm -hmm. I think there's a general reluctance within the general public to accept bad news straight away. There's a tendency towards denial. Oh, this is uh, mass hysteria, this is panic, this is, um, this is not true, it's exaggerated and so on. That's typical, I think, of many epidemics. And it's typical all over. It's not just European countries or the United States or China or anywhere else. I think there is the credibility question has to find its way. And I think the communication on COVID-19 is very patchy in the sense that there's still a lot of, it can't be true, it's, over, it's overstated, it's 
these numbers are ridiculous and so on. I think, having said that, all countries that I'm aware of are trying very hard to keep people informed, not to be over alarmist. But you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If you publish too much, you're accused of creating hysteria. Mm. If you hold stuff back, then you're accused of this a conspiracy and they're not telling us the whole story. And it's very difficult. I mean, I'm British, obviously, but living in France. As of midnight last night, France is in lockdown. So mm. walking around my small town today, there's not a cafe open, there's not a bar open, there's not a restaurant open. Even the local Catholic church has a big poster on the door saying, sorry, no, no masses for the foreseeable future. So there's a strange sense of, is it really as bad as this? You know, mm. I, people like me are being encouraged to go into self-isolation, which is to sort of, because I'm in an age group where people like I am supposed to be a little more vulnerable than others, I'm supposed to stay at home. In fact, I'm not supposed to. I really should, and I will. It's not too difficult for me because I, I live alone anyway. Mm. My family are all over the place, but certainly not here. But I think that dilemma is there for all sorts of people. And I think the communications in this is really, really tricky from the point of view of a WHO, if you like. Think of what the French health ministers had to figure out the best course of action. Or Spain, or Italy. And if you look at the TV and there's, you see these ghost towns, don't you? There's nobody walking around. And people are kind of scared and they're not sure how scared to be. And this is difficult in communications terms because it's going to be a long, a long time with us, this pandemic, uh, Kurt. I'm sure you know that. <clears throat> mm -hmm. It's not going to go away. And if the authorities in Italy or Spain or France are more or less interrupting your daily life and imposing quite life-altering restrictions on you, why would they do that unless they felt scientific evidence was in support of it. Wouldn't mm -hmm. you agree? Yeah, I would agree. I, and, and I think these restrictions on our daily life, no shops, like, unless a pharmacy or a food store, they're not going to do this, one, for no reason, and two, to lift it in a couple of weeks' time. Do you mm. follow my thinking? Mm. This is going to be the way for months, mm. many months. I think... By the end of the year, if we're lucky, there may be a little more optimism. But at the moment, I don't think uh, the authorities in any of these countries are willing to say, don't worry, uh, it's going to get better. It's going to have to get worse before it gets better. That, that key piece about trust in our world, foundations and nonprofits can be trusted messengers. They can be trusted to provide public health information. Do you have recommendations for nonprofits or foundations or any entity in this moment that's communicating into this space? The key thing is really to understand the origins of this epidemic, to understand the science, to get a hang of the modeling that's taking place, the number of tests, the number of cases, the number of contacts traced, the age groups and all of that. The responsibility there is to try to get it nailed down what this is and what it isn't and what are, I don't say best case and worst case scenarios, but as accurate 
assumptions or predictions as are manageable, bearing in mind that an epidemic or a pandemic is very difficult to predict in terms of its evolution and its spread. And I don't think we know that yet. I don't think we understand fully the circumstances, the, the information that needs to be further researched. The best possible scenario in communication terms is to be as sure as possible of the scientific evidence. If you don't have that, you're not completely credible. Yeah, right. You need to be persuasive and convincing and show that you know what you're talking about and that you will continue to know what you're talking about as long as that information is required. So it requires um, some special talents. You know, you need to be pretty disciplined. You need to stay on message. The message needs to be correct and consistent. You're going to have to really stick with it. It's going to be hard work. People will be difficult to persuade in many cases. They'll, they'll be sceptical. If I can, if I may, just go back to the early days of the AIDS pandemic, which nobody recognised as such until it was very well established. But at that time, the level of denial was enormous. The level of ignorance was huge. The social consequences were vast. Stigma, discrimination in terms of colour, culture, sexual orientation, and so on and so forth. It was a massive problem in terms of communicating to try to deal not just with information about about the disease, but information to educate or inform or enlighten the public in many other ways. I think we're in the communications history, as I have been aware of it, I think we've got much, much better at it, and, and that's wonderful. But we've got much better at a time when it's also not nearly as simple as it was, you know. Uh, when I started doing this, there was no internet. <laughs> there was no mobile phone. There was no social media. And now that there are all of those, there is a bewildering range of information good, bad, and awful, and there is a terrible possibility of bad information overwhelming better information. So to me, that's a very big issue, because in the olden days, you knew what you were doing, you knew who you were talking to, you knew the means that you could do it. Press, radio, television, basically. Now, you can say one thing on any of those in five minutes, and in 10 minutes, it'll be contradicted here, there and everywhere by some person who rubbishes what you just said or who denies it or who passes around an alternative version of everything. So if part of our questions now are how do we do this, I think the answer is be professional, be candid, be honest and be consistent. And gradually, I think the public will come to see this is not any of the silly words that are being used. It's not a hoax. It's not a panic-mongering exercise. It's for real. And they'll, they'll start to see that, well, already, by the disruption in their daily lives that's being caused, whether it's travelling. I've, I've seen those pictures from the airports in the USA. Equally, I've seen the pictures of abandoned, empty streets at the Vatican in Rome, across Italy, the same in Spain and now in France. People will have second thoughts about the credibility factor. They might have started out saying, don't believe it. But heaven forbid, when it gets very much more serious and they may come very close to someone they know, maybe a member of their community, 
it will start to be taken more seriously. But unfortunately, that's at a cost. It's at a cost and a price and a, and a delay. What is the role for communications in making the case for better preparation? How well are we doing? Obviously, we're in the middle of the crisis, but how well are we doing and what could we be doing better to help all of us be better prepared between the crises? What I'm thinking of is even as this is happening in the United States, we have this thing called the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which we can fill with oil. And that's being done right now, given the oil conflict that's playing out. I don't believe we have the Strategic Healthcare Mask Reserve that we're drawing on right now for in the United States. And I would be curious if you have perspectives on how well-prepared the global community is and in what role communications could play in helping improve that preparedness. I'm not a scientist, but perhaps because I'm not, I have developed and acquired great sense of respect for the scientific fraternity, especially in medical science. And I know that although they don't always get great credit for it, I know that they, are extremely professional people, individuals, groups, and organizations. It's not visible, really, but they are terrific at exchanging information and data and, and, and sharing. I think they do that beautifully, by and large. China, for example, has, has been panned a bit for withholding, but I, I don't think, with closer examination, that's actually true. I think... They did very quickly sequence the the coronavirus gene and share it worldwide. Not worldwide in the public sense, but worldwide in the scientific community. So I think they're doing very well. I think WHO has an important role in helping that discussion and sharing of information. All scientists are very concerned about avoiding bad science. It ruins a reputation. If you don't do your studies, if you don't do your work, if you don't publish it and be open to to criticism, peer criticism, um, you're nothing. So I think scientists in a personal way have a, a big investment in collaboration, cooperation, and information sharing. And I think we can take a lot of comfort from that. We've all been sceptical sometimes about some scientific aspect of, of life. And scientists, since the start of the 20th century at least, have had to persuade people that, yes, if you do this, it will be a good thing. And against all sorts of obstacles and resistance, and let's just go back to HIV AIDS, it didn't used to be called HIV. It was called AIDS because nobody knew what the virus was. <laughs> HIV was HIV was an unknown thing. So I think a lot has been learned, sadly, at a, at a human cost also, and an economic cost, um, about the evolution of the last em- epidemic and how it will inform what to do about the next one. You know, it's a, a little bit of a, a hoary old thing to say, but WHO, I suppose I've taken some responsibility for, for propagating it. WHO has for years been predicting what we've got now. Sometimes being taken seriously, but regretfully sometimes just being scoffed at. Mm. And uh, I think that's just human nature. I don't think we're very good as people 
uh, absorbing bad news. Mm. We don't want to hear that. We'd rather it wasn't true. It's much better if the scientists are all conspiring just to scare us or that there's, you know, there's some prophet there lurking behind some evil big pharma. It goes back to where we started. You've got to convince people that you're telling them the facts, that you're telling them the truth, that your motives are honourable, that there are dire consequences in the lives of a huge number of people and try to get them on, on board, try to get them persuaded. Thompson Prentice, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And we're back with Let's Hear It. And Kirk, uh, you know, thanks again for doing what you needed to do to, to find people who could help us make sense of how do you communicate a time like this. I mean, obviously, this is extremely challenging stuff. We've never been here before. No, we haven't been here before. But you do make, uh, or they make a good point, which is that they've actually been here before after a fashion in that, obviously, Thompson was working in the HIV crisis. Yeah. And so much so that they named the disease, here's a disease that we don't know what it is. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> the technical name. And so, therefore, they were operating in a vacuum of information for quite some time. And Barbara as well, not only was there no playbook for her to operate from, but she felt like she needed to create one. And she, as you say, literally wrote the book on health, pandemic, crisis communication. Yeah, that's right. And as I was having these conversations with these folks, and again, really reached out out of the blue. And, you know, of course, this is such a moment. They were both a busy, but be willing to, um, to spend a little time and talk about this. And I found them both to be extremely generous, which has been a theme of our podcast, the generosity of people and then in their willingness to talk to us, but then also really, really thoughtful. But when I was thinking about doing those conversations, I was like, so, you know, what, how does this relate to what we're trying to do with let's hear it. And one of the things that struck me when you do this social change, social purpose communication stuff across multiple fields long enough you see these moments arrive across these different issue sets from time to time where something that had been in the background suddenly is really in the forefront and there's a lot of energy and focus and attention and it almost becomes a moment where you can pause and look at the workings of how this actually works in reality because we're all caught up in it and you know, I think with this COVID-19 moment that we're in, it's so upsetting. It's so troubling. The possible consequences are so severe. And of course, there's just nothing but empathy for all of us in trying to find our way through that. Um, it was really interesting for me, the emotional intelligence that I heard from each of these top-notch communicators as they walked through their respective processes in their respective careers. And when Dr. Reynolds was talking about her work, she was actually writing about this for a former administration, the, the George W. Bush administration. And they identified six principles at that time. You know, they said, be first, be right, be credible, express empathy, promote action, show respect. You know, and, and she talks about that during our conversation and, and, and actually models that during our conversation. And, and I, I almost have this hope for us that at some point, as much as we feel so caught up in this now, at some point and maybe some point soon, hopefully, you know, we can kind of look back at this moment and think, man, what a thing that we all shared in that. But one of the takeaways potentially could be for us all is this learning for how 
people who have done this for a long time, you know, have learned to really practice it. And I thought it was interesting to hear Thompson in his own language, in his own very awesome way, you know, characterize what that has looked like from the standpoint of the WHO. And there was something about just the gravitas. We've talked about gravitas before on this podcast, but just the, the tenure, the gravitas, the experience that they both brought to those conversations that, you know, I, again, I, I just found really interesting, helpful, thoughtful, and, and frankly, in a way, reassuring even in this moment. I mean, how did that land for you? How was that feeling to you as you were listening to it? Well, you know, it's interesting because as you say, they certainly were reassuring. And the other thing I was reassured by was the fact that they were both basically saying the same thing. Mm. Needless to say, they had not compared notes. <laughs> but Thompson was talking about how the one thing he said about that really struck me was that you start communicating with the people who are most at risk. Yeah. And in this case, it's the health community and people who are providing those kinds of services, not the general public, because you have to keep them safe first. I think that it probably applies to other things. Won't, we won't get into it. We won't aggregate it or we won't try to tear it apart. But mm. that, that was a very interesting piece of common sense. But the other thing that he was that he said was you need to build trust. You need to be credible. You need to express empathy. And Barbara said almost exactly the same thing. And right. Thompson also said you need to be professional. You have to be candid. You have yep. to be honest. You have to right. be consistent. Yeah. And Barbara basically said the same thing. And and it's a great lesson to us all about all kinds of communications, not just, you know, our own crisis communications or things that happen in a health pandemic. Yep. But these are the ways that you engage with your audiences that help them better understand why you're there, what it is you're trying to say, build the kind of relationship with your audience that you know you need in order to be successful over the long term. So I learned a lot just about regular communications from these two conversations that were remarkably operating in parallel. Obviously, Thompson did it with a Scottish brogue, or <laughs> at the very least, like on the, he said he was, he was from the UK. So I guess he's a, a nationalist or not a nationalist. He's a, he's a, a European. Mm. <laughs> but I, I could swear if he wasn't from the, if he wasn't from Scotland, he was on the, the border. So the thing when I was um, going through things with Dr. Reynolds and Dr. Reynolds perspective she talked about promoting action and this idea that we're all part of the solution, that all of us have a role to play in the solution here. And I really, really appreciated that. And again, as you're talking about it, it's not just about communications in this moment around the public health consideration, but this is something that's so much in part of what we do with proactive communication always, right? You know, being part of the solution, what's your role? So while we don't work in public health personally that much, I thought that piece of that guidance was just really helpful and also, frankly, somewhat inspiring in this moment when it can you can feel helpless, right? But there's an actual there's actually an action that each of us can take, and there's an action that we can be part of in all of this. Well, Dr. Reynolds, she inspired you because she was doing the thing that she told you that you should do, which is make people feel better so they feel empowered to make good decisions. Right. I, I I came away feeling like, she, you know, here's someone here. The cobbler's kids got shoes that, you know, she was practicing what she preached. And she also said that good communications is designed to help people make the best possible decisions quickly, at, although with imperfect information. So I think those two things were were 
really good lessons. The other thing that I also took away from, which is universal, is that people are going to take in the story before they take in the facts. Yes. And the real, you have to be responsible by telling stories that are both inspirational and positive. You want to ensure that the stories that you tell do good and not harm. But that works in everything we do. It's not just right now. It's in literally every single approach to communications that we could possibly contemplate. No, I totally agree. And maybe the last thing then to comment on on this, you know, because you and I have talked about this, we're going to continue dropping our kind of regular sequence of podcasts as we move forward. We're dropping some special ones this week. I think we're going to republish maybe something coming from the communications network. Certainly you can talk about that. But, but neither of them, neither Dr. Reynolds nor uh, Thompson said, you know what, we've got plenty of communications going on in this moment, stand down, don't worry about it. You know, so I think there's this other piece of this, which is even though there's so much and it's in the news and you can go down any rabbit hole you want with social media, this idea that trusted messengers are needed and there's a need for repetition that just feels like there's a role for all of us, both professionally and personally, to be in that place of reinforcing those messages, even even if maybe we also feel like we're drowning in this a little bit. I mean, what do you think about that? Do you, do you agree with that or what's your feeling about that? Oh, I totally agree with that because we are each communicating with some set of constituents who listen to us and who care about what we have to say, particularly if you're at a foundation or a nonprofit. And, and what what Dr. Reynolds says was, you know, get the information to the constituents that they need in order to help them manage their fear. And you have to share information in a way that other people can take in. Yes. And so we we have to understand that at a moment like this, people are really afraid. And if there is information that they need in order to be able to operate their nonprofit or get funding that's available to them, we need to deliver it in a way that they can hear it. And I, I just think that's so important. We can't leave it to whomever, the WHO or the CDC or the other, or other folks to communicate about these very special, very specific constituent-based sets of communications. We have to do that because they won't get that information any other way. And I really think that was the spirit of how Dr. Reynolds came to this conversation, how Thompson Prentice came to this conversation again. Yeah, who the they, heck are us? They both responded immediately. <laughs> and it's, it, right. And as, or me, right? Or yeah, no, and they responded with such generosity and such care. And and honestly, I can think, I think it's fair to say had no idea what they were about to get themselves into, but were just willing to be so generous with their time. So forever grateful, Dr. Reynolds, yeah. Thompson Prentice. Thank you so much for joining us on, on Let's Hear It. All right. We'll see you all back. And folks, let us know what you're thinking and how we can help you as well. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show. And that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. 
We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you. And thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it. <laughs>